So Genesis chapter 50, I'll, I'll actually start reading in verse 33 of 49. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the fleshing floor, the, when they reached the, fle- the threshing floor of Etad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, "The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why they, the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim." So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt.
This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. This morning uh, we come to the final talk in this series of five. And before I start, I just want to say again how grateful I am for the invitation to come to your conference and uh, for the wonderfully warm welcome we've been given. Uh, my family and I have loved being here with you. I um, have sensed as I've been amongst you that uh, there's a great joy in the Lord amongst you and a wonderful appetite for his word. And uh, these things have been a great encouragement to me in your midst. So thank you. And uh, it's, as I said at the start, it's been an enormous privilege for me to search these chapters of the scriptures with you. Between uh, chapter 38, which we looked at last night, and chapter 50, which we conclude with today, lots happens. Uh, Again, I haven't passed over these chapters for any other reason than that our time has been limited. There are great riches in those chapters, and I hope you'll search them freshly on your own at some point soon. But, But they probably are some of the more familiar chapters in the second half of Genesis, and for that reason I'm going to assume this morning for the most part that uh, you are familiar to some degree with their content, with the story of Joseph's life, his, his ascent to a position of great power in Egypt, his, his work to provide for the people of Egypt and their neighbours through a time of famine, and his eventual reunion and reconciliation with his brothers. I, I realise some of you may not be familiar with this story, and if so, I, I apologise, but I'm, I'm sure you'll find a great blessing here in chapter 50 all the same. Let me, let me pray for us once more. Our Father God, we acknowledge again this morning that we are the recipients of wonderful grace, a grace to us in the Lord Jesus in whose name we gather and meet this morning as brothers and sisters with one another and with him, and your grace to us as well in the gift of your precious word. And so we we thank you for the scriptures by which you continue to speak into our world and into our hearts. And we pray that you might be so merciful as to do that once more this morning. Uh, We thank you for what we've just heard read and for your very own voice coming to us from, from the pages of the scriptures. And we pray that as we dwell on deep things now, things that are not easy to understand that you would grant us faith and repentance and a hope in your good purposes. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On July the 22nd uh, last year in Norway, uh, a right-wing extremist by the name of Anders Breivik got a gun, uh, gained access to a, a youth camp and started shooting. Uh, In the end, he killed 69 people and injured many others. Uh, You you no doubt remember the story from the news. It was a seemingly deliberate and well-planned act. Uh, Understandably, it sent shockwaves around the world. Uh, The attack was another terrible stain on the record of human history, an act of great evil. And it introduced into the lives of many, many people an immense amount of suffering. Where was God on July the 22nd in Norway while this was going on? What was he doing? That's that's no mere academic question, is it? It's a good question, an important one. 
And it's one we don't just ask with our minds, but with our, with our guts, with that anguished knot inside of us when we hear news like this and we don't know what to do with it. And of course, it's a question that's being asked all over the world every day. And it's a question that's been asked repeatedly down through history. And that's because the story of those murdered young people in Norway is not an isolated case. There's evil everywhere. There's suffering everywhere. It may not always take such an horrendous form, but it's always there. And it's in our lives and our experience too. And so we find ourselves asking this question as well. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there are four main ways you can try and answer that question. Four main ways that Christians, I suppose, have come to talk about the relationship of God to suffering and evil. So before we dive into Genesis 50 this morning, I, I want to just walk you through these, these options that I think we're faced with in trying to answer this question. If people have come to any sort of conclusion about this issue, it seems to me it's usually one of the following four conclusions. Option one is the conclusion that God has nothing to do with it. This is what people believe when they say things like, a good God could never allow something like this to happen. Or, I see God as the sort of person who would always prevent these sorts of disasters if he could. This is the view that sometimes concludes that God mustn't exist in the unbelieving world, because if he did, he would stop evil and suffering. Or if he does exist, then this must be the sort of stuff that's not really his responsibility, his domain. Evil and suffering are Satan's domain, or, or they're simply what human beings in their fallen state are entirely responsible for. If God's real and if he's good, then we mustn't taint him with this sort of thing. We must maintain that God distances himself from these kind of events. That's the first option. Now, most of the time, Christians don't go for this first option because it's a conclusion with an inherently diminished view of God's sovereignty. And because the Bible talks a lot about God's sovereignty, his control of the world, Bible-believing Christians usually go for one of the next three options. And this is where it gets a bit more complicated. Option two recognises that God is sovereign, but wants to maintain a distance between God and the suffering and the evil that's in the world. Option two is the conclusion that God allows evil and suffering. He doesn't initiate it and he doesn't get his hands dirty with it, but he does grant permission for Satan or for evil human beings to have their way with certain things from time to time. Option three is prepared to go a little bit further and to say that God not only allows suffering and evil in the world, but he uses it. This view is still resistant to saying anything about God initiating suffering in the world, but it is saying that he's powerful enough to turn evil to good. This view says that God can redeem terrible situations and transform them for his purposes and for the blessing of his people. And then option four is the one that goes the furthest. People who hold to option four are willing to entertain the idea that God does have some initiating role when it comes to suffering and evil in the world. Option four proponents aren't just willing to say that God allows suffering or that he uses it. They're willing to say that in some sense at least God stands 
behind it. He, he brings it into people's lives and experiences in order to fulfill his purposes. Now, I wonder as we come to this today, which of those four options best describes your own thoughts on this question? And, and I don't just mean which one you think sounds closest to the truth when you're able to sit back and objectively analyse the evidence. I'm also asking which of these four is your default position when life is going pear-shaped or, or when this question is coming out of an excruciating knot in your guts and not just out of your head. What do you believe then? What does how you speak and live in those moments reveal about what you really believe? I think this chapter offers an answer to this crucial question. I want us to think this morning about which direction Genesis chapter 50 pushes us in when it comes to these four options. But in order to get there, we do need to go back and have a good look at what the text is saying. And at point two on your outlines, if you've got one there, you can see I've, I've broken the chapter up into four sections for us to look at briefly. Firstly, there's Jacob's burial in verses 1 to 14. Uh, by this stage in the story of Joseph, uh, Jacob and his sons have all arrived in Egypt where Joseph was in power and he has revealed himself to his family and they are emotionally reunited. So it's a wonderful story. But at the end of Genesis 49, we read about how Jacob finally died. He was over 130 years old and upon his death, Joseph weeps for him and then has the Egyptians give him the full Egyptian embalming treatment. According to verse 3 of our chapter, it took 40 days. There's every reason to believe, I suppose, that Jacob was perhaps the first Jewish mummy in, in Egypt. And then in verses 4 to 5, jo Joseph asks permission from Pharaoh to go and bury his father where uh, he'd said he wanted to be buried, in the cave that his father Abraham had bought for the purpose back in the land of Canaan, the land the Lord had promised to give to his family. And given the regard with which Joseph is held in Egypt, Pharaoh not only agrees to this request, but sends a massive entourage to accompany Joseph and his brothers along the way. It's a remarkable symbol of the way in which God has blessed Joseph and his family that at this point in their family's experience, there are so many Egyptians participating in the morning that the Canaanites who saw them in verse 11 presumed it was an Egyptian funeral. But it wasn't. This was the funeral of a man who had come to be known as Israel. This was him being buried in the land that would one day belong to the nation called by his name. And then secondly, after Jacob's burial, we find Joseph's brothers again gripped by fear. Despite everything that's taken place up to this point and despite all the mercy they have already received at Joseph's hand, they still don't really trust him. They're worried that with his dad out of the way, Joseph's now going to turn around and take his revenge upon them. So it seems they made up a story about some final words Jacob was supposed to have said about how important it was for Joseph to deal kindly with his sinful brothers. And they didn't even turn up to Joseph's court themselves to deliver this message. So we read in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. 
And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. So here we find Joseph weeping for the second time in this chapter. And it's, it's hard to know why he's crying. Is it because he believed the message and he was moved by his father's alleged words? Or is it because he sees through his brother's deception and is grieved that they felt they had to try this? It's hard to be sure. Either way, their deception is sad, is it not? There's been so much forgiveness and reconciliation already in this story that you'd, you'd think at last this family would be at peace, that they'd finally be able to sort of rest comfortably in each other's company especially at this time of shared grief. And of course, in a sense, they do. But, but nevertheless, the author of Genesis chooses to remind us here that this family has not been able to completely shake their sin. There may be peace, but it's a kind of unholy peace. Just as these brothers began this story with a lie to Jacob about Joseph, so the story finishes with their lie to Joseph about Jacob. To the very end, Genesis wants us to avoid the conclusion that the founding fathers of the nation of Israel were worthy heroes. They were not. And then in in verse 18, the brothers come to him in person and they bow down to him and offer themselves as slaves. And Joseph reassures them here by sharing with, with them his perspective on the past. And this is the third section in the chapter from verse 19. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? He calms their fears by telling them the vengeance they're afraid of is not his to deliver. God is the judge. And Joseph knows that. And at this point, Joseph articulates the same conviction that that the New Testament urges us to hold to, that, that revenge is never an appropriate response to being sinned against. Take revenge is to play God. It's not our part to judge people in this way. We, we must leave it to the Lord. And Joseph seeks to reassure his brothers here by telling them that he has, he has no intention of taking God's role. But nevertheless, Joseph doesn't stop there in his efforts to set their anxious hearts at ease. He goes on in verse 20. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. It's almost as if Joseph plays the part of the narrator here, drawing together the threads of the story and articulating key theological principles that have undergirded this whole narrative. And whichever way you look at it, this statement is a statement of powerful trust in God's sovereignty and God's purposes. He reassures his brothers with a promise that he'll care for them and their children, but he also reassures them by showing them his perspective on their sin. You see, he's not going to be kind to them simply because it's not his place to judge. He's also going to be kind to them because he's genuinely not looking back on their sin with anger. He still sees it as a sin, you notice. He's unembarrassed about saying that they had intended to harm him. But Joseph sees God's intention at work, even in the midst of their sin. Joseph believed that there are two explanations for every event that takes place in our lives. 
This is a critical thing to understand about this chapter, and both are true. There is the explanation in the realm of human responsibility, and there is the explanation in the realm of God's sovereignty. And his brothers may have intended evil, but God intended good. He was working out his purposes for salvation, that many people would be kept alive through an awful famine, including the brothers themselves. And it's because Joseph can see that that he can look back on what his brothers did to him with a measure of contentment. He's not still angry. He's, he's not carrying a grudge. He's actually thankful for what God has done. And it's ultimately that contentment and thankfulness towards God that means his brothers have nothing to fear from him. The chapter's fourth and final section sees Joseph himself die. But before he breathes his last, he goes on to share with his brothers his perspective on the future too. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I think Joseph's words here are a double-edged sword. He prophesies God's deliverance of their families. But in so doing, he's obviously implying that there would be in the future something they'd need to be delivered from. At the point when Joseph died, they were all still living in absolute prosperity. We've seen it already in this chapter under the favour of the Egyptians. How different that is from what we'll see when we turn the page of our Bible into the book of Exodus. Joseph is subtly pointing to the fact that it won't always be this way in Egypt. Down the track, they're going to need God to come to their aid. And of course, he's foreshadowing here the situation that the Israelites find themselves in, in Exodus chapter 1. But nevertheless, Joseph's words are primarily a promise of great hope. Though they will need God to rescue them, that's exactly what God will do. And he'll do it because he's made a promise to this family and he will most certainly keep his promise. His promise is to one day bring them into the lands he told Abraham it would be his. And that's the reason why Joseph imitates his father Jacob in asking for his bones to be eventually taken out from Egypt and into Canaan. And this shows remarkable faith and insight on Joseph's part. See, though the best years of his life had been in Egypt, and though it's in Egypt that he's really known the blessings of God Nevertheless, he knows it's not his place, it's, it's not his land, it's not his home. He thinks of himself ultimately as an alien and a stranger in Egypt. Much like 1 Peter in the New Testament urges us to see ourselves in the world. Because we, like Joseph, live and work and prosper in a country that is not our ultimate resting place. We're destined for another land, another city. We're citizens of heaven. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, the New Testament explicitly urges us to model our lives on the faith Joseph expressed in God at exactly this point. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, you can, you can look it up later, but it's astonishing to me that of all the things the author of Hebrews could tell us to imitate in the life of Joseph, it's this, the instruction to have his bones carried to Canaan. And the author of Hebrews is saying we ought to share his perspective on the future and more than we enjoy where we are now, 
we ought to look forward to that day when we will be taken from here to our final resting place. And with that, of course, the book of Genesis comes to an end. But as we uh, conclude this morning, I want us to go back to the question we began with, and, and we can do that because of the way Joseph invites us to see the whole story of his life from God's perspective. And we, we can return to that question chiefly, I think, because of chapter 50, verse 20. It's certainly the most profound verse in this chapter. It expresses a, a principle that utterly transforms the way we read the account of Jacob, and it's a principle that can utterly transform our lives if we embrace it. I'm going to call it the 50-20 principle because of where we find it here. might help you to remember it. I want to make sure you really grasp what Joseph says in this verse. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Notice the repetition of the word intended. He's saying that at one and the same time, there were the purposes of his brothers and the purposes of God. At one and the same time, there was an evil plan and a good plan. He's not just saying that the brothers hatched a terrible plot, but that God managed to redeem the situation and turn the course of history around. He's saying that in some sense, God intended it. If I can put it very plainly, it seems to me that he's not just saying that God allowed it to happen or even that he used what happened in his own way, but that somehow, somehow God stood behind it. Now, obviously, God didn't stand behind it in a way that absolves Joseph's brothers of all their responsibility. Joseph still says, you intended to harm me. They're not off the hook. They're still accountable for their actions. They made their decisions and they had to live with the consequences. But Joseph is saying that just as they made their decisions, so did God. Joseph believes that there are two explanations for every event that takes place in our lives. And both are true. There is the explanation in the realm of human responsibility and there is the explanation in the realm of God's sovereignty. And of course, in order to get our heads around this, we might, we might just need to expand our concept of what God's sovereignty is actually like. Because it seems to me that perhaps he's so sovereign... That, that he can be in complete control of the world and of people's lives even while human beings are responsibly choosing to act in an evil way. That is quite mind-boggling. But whether it's mind-boggling or not, we have to wrestle with it in our minds and hearts because the Bible won't let us just choose one explanation over the other. It won't let us say that God was in charge here and so the brothers were merely pawns on the chessboard of history. But nor will it let us say that the brothers were in charge here and God simply had to clean up their mess after them. No, both truths are true. The brothers made and then followed through with a plan that they were responsible for. And at the same time, God made and then followed through on a plan he was responsible for. 
This is the Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 principle. And in the life of Joseph, it enabled him to see how God had purposed in his brother's evil and in his own suffering to bring salvation to literally thousands, who knows, maybe millions of people. And it enabled him to see how God had stayed faithful to his promises through everything. And in the end, it was this conviction that enabled him to forgive his brothers and treat them kindly and which enabled him to live in contentment and joy rather than in anger and bitterness. And this same principle enables many other people in the Bible to live in trust and contentment too. It was a great comfort to Hannah in her childlessness. It was a great comfort to Job in his suffering. And there are many other examples we could explore if we had time this morning. But I do want you to hear me say very clearly that I don't think this is just the curious or careless way that Joseph happens to express himself here. The 50-20 principle is echoed throughout the scripture. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 is perhaps a particularly pertinent example. The prophet says on God's behalf, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And it's the language of initiative in a verse like that. And here in Genesis 50, that's so striking. God intended it. God creates darkness. God creates disaster, the scripture says. I think what the Bible wants us to see is that the the Star Wars view of the world is actually not right in the end. It's not as if there's the good side of the force and the dark side of the force and the two are locked in an epic and as yet unresolved struggle. It's not as if there's God and Satan and they are both pulling as many strings as they possibly can in the world to try and get their way. No, God is sovereign. He is in complete control of the world. There's no part of the world over which he has relinquished his reign to someone else. There's nothing which takes place in this world, including suffering and evil, in which he is not working out his good purposes. There is no event which occurs, no word spoken, no sin committed, no action done which does not sit under his supreme lordship. That's why I believe of all the options we considered at the start of the sermon for explaining God's relationship to suffering and evil, option four is the best. I'm not saying either that option four is the perfect summary. It's not. This is a a deep issue and it, it really requires deep thinking and careful explanation. I'm just saying that of the four summaries I gave at the start, the fourth option is the best of the four. And I think it's the best because it's the one that gets closest to expressing what the Bible says from beginning to end. I'm not saying that God, God allows or God uses are always inappropriate way to speak. There's, there's truth in both option two and option three. But what I want to help you to see this morning, what I want to push you on is that the Bible is unembarrassed about going further. Now, of course, when it comes to trying to articulate something as profound as this, human language is notoriously limited. And I'm not pretending it's easy to explain what the Bible's saying here. And even if we're convinced that the Bible is saying that God stands behind suffering and evil in some way, we also have to acknowledge that he doesn't stand behind them in the same way he stands behind the blessings he gives. You know, because he pours out his blessings with gladness and delight 
yet he brings suffering to people with grief and no delight at all. And we would also want to say, of course, that he brings good things to people because he is good. But though he is Lord even over evil, he is not, of course, evil himself. They are some of the nuances and complexities that we need to get our heads around. But nevertheless, I think the Bible invites us to see that God is so sovereign, so in control of the world, that he really does stand behind everything in some way. Even acts like that which Joseph's brothers committed. He stands behind them because of his unrelentingly good purposes which he is working to bring about. If you're still not sure about this, I want to suggest you think for just a moment about the crucifixion of Christ. Because I think you can see the 50-20 principle being played out in the gospel of Jesus as well, perhaps more clearly than at any other time before or since. Let me explain what I mean. Do you think there was ever greater, greater human suffering than what Christ endured when he suffered the humiliation and the agony of his execution on the cross, not to mention the excruciating pain of having his father turn his face away? And was there ever a greater human evil than putting to death so cruelly the author of all life? And whose idea was it? Who stood behind it? Well, of course, those that called for his arrest and execution are responsible, are they not? They most certainly stood behind it. But what Christian would disagree that God stood behind it as well, that that he was responsible as the architect of the whole plan, bringing immense blessings to millions through this seemingly senseless and brutal act. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 that Jesus was handed over to be killed by the Jewish leaders in God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It seems to me that not only do Christians accept God's hand in Jesus' death, but we delight in it. I don't hear Christians raising moral objections very often about how God could do such a thing. And I have to admit that sometimes that makes me wonder whether we're actually fine with God acting this way just so long as we can see how it benefits us. Could not Jesus, like Joseph, have later addressed those who crucified him with these words? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And if this is the way that God works, and not just in Bible times, but now, then the 50-20 principle is something we really need to get our heads around. Because if we really believe it, then it will radically alter how we see the past, as it did for Joseph. And it will make it possible that, like Joseph, we might be able to look back on terrible things that have been done to us, still acknowledging that they were terrible, and still living with some very appropriate and healthy grief. But nevertheless, with a measure of contentment and even thanksgiving, 
for the good things God has brought through the pain. And if we really believe the 50-20 principle, then I suspect it will also radically alter the way we see the future, as it did for Joseph. Not that we will expect never to be harmed, but that we will face even the possibility of great suffering with hope and confidence in God. People who believe that God is at work in everything, and I mean everything, for good, don't actually need to fear the future or what men and women may do to us. What's more, believing that this is true ought to transform the way we we deal with our trials, even now when we're going through them. And for some of us, that will be this very day. Though we usually can't see God's purposes when we're in the midst of a dark time, even so, the Bible invites us in chapters like this one to place our faith in the God who is the supreme Lord at every moment of our lives and to trust him to be good to us, to trust his flawless wisdom. Charles Spurgeon once said, and I think this is a great quote, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in mysterious form. And that attitude will be the constant companion of every Christian who believes the 50-20 principle. And perhaps most wonderful of all, believing that this biblical principle is true will even transform how we see our own sin. Because one of the most liberating dimensions of this, I think, is that not even our sin will get in the way of God's good purposes. Even though our constant failures mean we deserve to miss out on God's blessings, this principle reminds us of what we've seen through Genesis, that that's not the way God operates. It's true, of course, that sometimes we do live with the messy consequences of our sins, but, but if we belong to Christ, even those consequences are intended for our good. And our sins themselves are swallowed up in God's perfect purposes for our lives. After all, was it not Joseph's own brothers, the very ones who were guilty of a great evil against him, was it not them amongst many others whose lives were saved as a result of God's good intention even through their evil? That's that's astonishing grace, isn't it? And this chapter reminds us that God really is that good. The question we asked again this morning at the start of the sermon is, is not a mere academic question, is it? You know, while ever there are atrocities in the world and whilst ever there are dark days of suffering and evil in our lives, we will ask this question and we will ask it from our guts, not just from our brains. But as I hope you've seen freshly today, the, the Bible's answer is that God was there in Norway on July the 22nd last year working out his good purposes, even though we can't see for the life of us how that might be possible, any more than Joseph could have seen what good might come when he feared for his life at the bottom of a well, or any more than Jesus' disciples could have seen what good might possibly come as they looked up at their dying leader on the cross and feared that all hope was lost. 
We are in that position so much of the time, are we not? Yet God's word makes this promise. God will be with us every day we walk this planet of his. Invisible is not the same as absent. And every day we walk it as his children, we have this confidence that though we can't see for the life of us how it's the case, he is working out his good purposes in our lives too. And if we do believe this, and I mean really believe it, even on our darkest days when the knot in our guts seems overwhelming, if we'll believe it, I'm convinced it will make all the difference in the world to our lives. And if perhaps you long for greater contentment and greater thankfulness in your Christian life, then can I, can I dare you this morning to meditate on this biblical truth and to see if it just isn't the truth that will liberate you from so much bitterness and confusion and fear and, and which will usher you into new joy. It's been my experience that no biblical truth has made more difference to my daily life than this one. I don't know about you, but for my part, I'd have to say that I love this truth. I certainly love it far better than the alternative. The alternative, of course, is that God's not in total control of every event in my life. And if that were true, then the scary reality would be that I may well be the victim of cruel chance or sinister evil And I would have no guarantee that there's an all-powerful and loving Father in heaven who is now and always will be a step ahead of every slither of evil and every every ounce of suffering. But he is. I do have that guarantee. I have it here in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and it's a principle that's echoed through the pages of the Bible and rammed home to me by the gospel upon which I've staked my life. This is a truth I couldn't live without. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Why don't you take a minute on your own and then I'll lead us in prayer.